Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We like to study through books of the Bible here at Whitefields. We're currently in a series in which we're studying verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of 2 Corinthians in a study called Strength in Weakness. And today we're picking up where we left off last week in chapter 5, starting in verse 11. So if you'd turn there, let's bow our heads as we open God's word and pray. Lord, we come to you this morning just humbled, Lord, by the fact of of how much you love us, how you welcome us in. And Lord, we desire to hear from you and receive from you. So Lord, as we hear your word this morning, would you help us by your spirit that we would understand what it says, understand what it means, and Lord, that we would apply it to our lives. Lord, put into practice these things that we're hearing from you, and we pray that they would have a transforming effect on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year was 1994. I was in the sixth grade, and all of my classmates were talking about this cool new band that they all loved. And I thought to myself, wow, if all these people love this band, they can't all be wrong, right? And so I thought, I can't wait to hear this music that everybody's talking about. This is going to be amazing. So one evening, I asked my parents to take me to the music store. If you remember, there was a small window of time where we had these music stores where you could actually like sit down at this counter and you could listen to like a CD before you bought it. It was one of those. And I found the CD at the music store. I took it to the counter. I handed it to the clerk there and asked, could I listen to this before I buy it? I was so excited to hear this music that all the other kids have been talking about. So they put the CD in. I put on the headphones. The music starts to play. And I heard something that was just terrible. It was this kind of Swedish dance pop music. And the band, if you can even call them a band, I mean, it was, uh, the band was Ace of Bass. And, and people were saying that Ace of Bass is the next ABBA. And I didn't know what ABBA was, but now I didn't even want to know what ABBA was. Like, no thanks. Right? Like, but here's the thing. You know what I did after I listened to that music that I hated? I took that CD, I walked up to the cash register, I handed them $20 of hard-earned money that I made from mowing lawns that summer, and in exchange for my money, they gave me my very own copy of The Sign by Ace of Bass. You see, uh, even though I hated that music, I felt compelled to buy the CD. You see, I was compelled by peer pressure, by the desire to fit in, by the desire to be part of the group. Everybody else was into it. I was compelled by fear that if I didn't do it, other people would look down on me because I wasn't part of the group. I didn't like the thing that they all liked. And so even though I hated this music, I bought the CD and I took it home. And you know what I did? I can remember on multiple occasions how I'd take the CD, I put it in our family CD player, our system there, and I'd turn it up and I would force myself to listen to it multiple times. I forced myself to listen to it because I thought maybe I can make myself like it, right? But despite my best efforts, it never worked. I still dislike it to this day. But that album, The Sign by Ace of Bass, did you know it's one of the top 100 best-selling albums of all time? And you know why? It's because millions of people were just like me. They felt compelled (laughs) to buy that CD whether they liked it or not. You see? 
Let me, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt compelled to do something? To be compelled means to have an irresistible urge to behave in a certain way. And it brings up an important question for us. The question is this. What is it that compels you to do the things that you do? What is it that drives your decisions and ultimately your life? You know, we live in a very high-pressure society, and there are just a multitude of forces and factors that are vying all the time, compelling to trying to compel you to do things and make you do what they want you to do. So first of all, right, there's marketing. Such a big part of our lives is marketing and advertisements, that we, which seek to compel us to purchase products or to do certain things. According to Forbes magazine, the average American encounters 10,000 advertisements every single day. There's also the power of peer pressure, right, that compels us to do things. This is what motivates people to buy Ace of Base CDs and to, to do TikTok challenges and to make videos of themselves doing dangerous things so they can post them online to get likes. Peer pressure can compel us to do things that we wouldn't normally do or even want to do. It can make us feel compelled to do things that are not even in our own best interest. And it's related to another force that, that is upon us, which is the force that compels us to do things, which is fear, right? There's, there's different kinds, right? Whether it's a fear of pain or the fear of rejection, whether it's a fear of missing out or the fear of being irrelevant, fear is a powerful motivator. There's the fear of loss, the fear of failure, the fear of losing your house, for example. That's what motivates me to keep paying my mortgage. So fear can be a, an important factor, a, a factor that compels us to do things. So think about it. In your life, think through it. What are the things that compel you to do what you do? What is it that drives your decisions and ultimately your life? Ron Swanson, he's the boss in the TV show Parks and Rec. He famously said, there are only three ways to motivate people, money, fear, and hunger. Well, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle is going to say, no, that's not true. There are not only three ways to motivate people. There are actually more ways and better ways to motivate people. There are even greater, more powerful motivating factors, which if you really know them, if you really understand them, you know what they'll do? They'll compel you to live in a way that is radically different than other people in the world and in a way that is incredibly rewarding. The title of today's message is Compelled by the Love of Christ. Compelled by the Love of Christ. And what we're going to see in our passage today, our summary sentence, our takeaway truth, kind of our, our outline sentence that we're going to use as our guide for working through these verses. Here's it, here it is for today. I'd love it if you'd write it down, take a photo, whatever you got to do to take this thought and idea with you as you go today. Here's what it is. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ compel us to live for him who gave his life for us. So one more time, and then we'll go through it and break it into parts. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ compel us to live for him who gave his life for us. So let's look at the first part of that, the fear of the Lord. And that brings us to where we pick up where we left off last week in verse 11. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians, chapter five, verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. 
Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle is writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. And in this section of this letter, Paul is sharing with them what motivates him to do the things that he does. And it's interesting when you think about Paul's life. And here's why. Because in the case of Paul the Apostle, we know that before he became a Christian, he had a pretty nice life. You see, prior to becoming a Christian, Paul went by the Jewish name, Saul. And as Saul, as a Jew, uh, he had a comfortable middle-class life. He was an influential figure in Jewish society there in Jerusalem. And Paul, or rather Saul, as he was known at that time, he belonged to the elite group of Jewish intellectuals called the Pharisees. Now, throughout the Gospels, you, you can read about how Jesus had, you know, multiple run-ins with the Pharisees. And I want you to think about this is actually fascinating. Uh, when, if you consider the fact that Paul, or rather Saul at that time, was a Pharisee, and he was a Pharisee at the time when Jesus was alive and when Jesus was doing his ministry, do you realize what that means? That means that Saul was almost certainly amongst those Pharisees who were publicly opposing Jesus during his ministry, like we read about in the Gospels. But something happened that changed his life. Through a series of events, Paul came to believe that Jesus actually was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the promised Savior of the world. God come to us in human flesh in order to save us. But when Saul, when he became a Christian, rather than his life getting easier, just the opposite happened. His life became much harder, and it happened immediately. When he became a Christian, he was rejected by the Jewish community. He lost his position as a leader in Jewish society. There's some evidence from the Bible that his family rejected him and disowned him. And whereas he formerly persecuted Christians, he now himself became the target of persecution. We read in the book of Acts, for example, about how when he converted to Christianity, when he began following Jesus, they sent people to assassinate him and kill him. And it makes you wonder, what would be so compelling that someone would be willing to give up everything he had and instead be persecuted and despised? But that wasn't all. You know, after he became a Christian, Saul then became a pioneer. You see, Jesus had called his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And so Saul, he started using the Greek name Paul. And he began venturing into the towns and cities of the Roman Empire to tell people about Jesus and to start churches. And as he did that, God used him greatly. But he also experienced incredible amounts of hardship, trials, and difficulties. Everything from sickness to personal attacks to injustices and calamities. And again, it makes you wonder, why? What would compel a man to give up everything to follow Jesus? What would compel a person to invite peril and hardship into their life by becoming a missionary and a preacher of the gospel? Certainly it wasn't peer pressure. The peer pressure that existed was pressuring him to do just the opposite. Obviously it wasn't money. He took a financial hit when he became a Christian. It, clearly it wasn't comfort. He experienced the opposite of comfort by becoming a Christian. No, it was something much more powerful than all of those factors that would compel a person to do something. 
On the one hand, he tells us here in verse 11, what compelled him to do these things? Number one, it was the fear of the Lord. And then he tells us, if you look down to verse 14, the other thing that compelled him was the love of Christ. So the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. And the truth is, if you really come to understand and to know these two things, the fear of the Lord and the love of Jesus Christ, if they become the most powerful motivating forces in your life, not only will they set you free from every other kind of fear that you might experience in this life or even the fear of death, but you know what else? They will cause you to live in a way that is different from other people and it will be the way that is actually truly fulfilling now let's look at the first of these motivating factors one more time. Look again at the beginning of verse 11. Paul the Apostle, he says this, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Notice how this verse begins with these words, since then. Some of your translations, if you're reading a different translation than the one that we're using today, it'll say, therefore, now, now, that's an interesting choice of words because, right, since then or therefore, since what that indicates is that Paul is now making a conclusion based on something that he said earlier. And what did he say earlier? Well, just look in your Bibles at the verse prior to this, verse 10. Here's what it says there. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, what Paul is saying here is this. Since we know that there is coming a day of judgment in which all people will stand before God, that knowledge compels us to live in a different way. It compels us to do things. You see, in our study last week, we, we talked about the judgment that is coming, right? The judgment of God. And we talked about how the Bible describes actually two different judgments that will take place on Judgment Day. Actually, Jesus talked about this same thing. If you look at Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about how at the end of times, there will be a great day of judgment in which everyone who has ever lived will stand before God. And Jesus says that what will happen at that time is that there will be a great separation. There will be a separation into two groups of all people, into the sheep and the goats, the sheep and the goats. Now, the sheep throughout the Bible, that term is used to describe those who belong to God, those for whom God is their shepherd, right? They know him as their shepherd. They belong to the flock of God. They, in this case, though, the word sheep is, furthermore, it's referring to those who have been redeemed through faith in Jesus. Now the goats, on the other hand, those are those who are not part of God's flock. They don't know Jesus as their good shepherd and they don't follow him. And so these two different groups of people were told in the Bible, it's described how they will both be judged, but they will be judged in two different ways. The redeemed will be judged according to their good works in order to be rewarded for the things that they've done. The unredeemed, on the other hand, they will be judged according to their sins in order to receive judgment for the sins they've committed. Now, the reason the redeemed, of course, aren't judged according to their sins is because Jesus took the judgment for our sins upon himself on the cross. So, in other words, 
Knowing this fact, Paul tells us, that all of us will stand before God one day, that should fill us with what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is a phrase used throughout the Bible, but understand it doesn't mean that God wants you to be scared of him. It doesn't mean that you should avoid him because he's, he's frightening. No, what it means is to have a reverential respect and acknowledgement that there is a God who is greater than you, and ultimately, he is the one to whom you must answer. The Bible tells us that this healthy fear of the Lord, it's an important starting point when it comes to how we approach God and how we think about ourselves and our lives. Psalm 110, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and all those who practice it have good understanding. Proverbs 14, verse 27, it says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So to have the fear of the Lord, what it means is to understand that there's a God to whom you must answer. And knowing that changes the way that you live, not only in regard to yourself, but also in regard to how you think about and how you, how you um, interact with other people. If there is coming a day of judgment for all people, and if there is a way to be saved through Jesus, and if you are going to have to answer to God for how you use the knowledge and the resources that he's given you, how should that then affect the way you live here and now? That's the issue. And Paul tells us here in verse 11, he says, here's how. Knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that there is coming a day of judgment, but that there is salvation through Jesus, here's what we do. He says at the end of verse 11, or really... In the middle of verse 11, he says, we try to persuade others. We try to persuade others. Now, what are we trying to persuade them about? Well, if you look down at verse 20, he tells us the answer to that question. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, we try to persuade others about the truth of what the Bible says about God, about what the Bible says about sin, about what the Bible says about judgment and salvation through Jesus. We try to persuade people of these things so that they can believe and trust in Jesus and be saved. Now, in some cases, that might be as simple as just clearly explaining the message of the gospel and the Bible's teachings on these things. In other cases... It might involve answering people's questions to help them remove the intellectual barriers that they believe that they can't get over in order to believe in Jesus or, or removing biases, right? Helping them to see things more clearly, giving them more information. Uh, we try to persuade people through our words. We also try to persuade through our actions. In other words, we never want to create unnecessary barriers that people would have to get over in order to believe in Jesus. Rather, we want to do everything we can in word and in deed to help persuade people to trust in Jesus. And just think for a moment, though, if you will, what an incredible thing that is. What an incredible privilege that we get to be involved in this incredible work that God is doing in the world of seeking and saving those who are lost. We get to be ambassadors of his love. We get to be ambassadors of the message of salvation to a world that desperately needs it. We get to be involved in God's work of changing people's lives forever, their eternal destiny. 
And Paul says, this is what motivates me. First of all, it's the fear of the Lord. It's the understanding that there is coming a day of judgment, but that there is salvation available through Jesus and that I too will stand before God to give an account of what I did with the knowledge and resources he gave me. He says in verse 11, looking at the second half, he says, but what we are is plain to God. And I hope it's plain to your conscience also. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. Paul says essentially, look, I'm not trying to say that, I'm not saying this because I'm bragging. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here. What I'm doing is I'm hoping for you to see, I want you to understand what I do and why I do it. And he says, part of it is, I want you to be proud of me. Remember, there were people who, who both outside the church and in the church there in Corinth who were very critical of Paul, who questioned his motives, who questioned a lot of things about him. And Paul says, I want that when people come around and they're criticizing me or accusing me of having ulterior motives, I hope that you'll be able to set them straight because you've heard it now from my mouth and from my heart. You see, it wasn't just the fear of the Lord, though, that compelled Paul to do what he did. But it was also, and this brings us to the second part of our sentence, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. That's the second part of our sentence, the love of Christ. Look at verse 13. We're reading from the NIV, by the way, today. It says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Now, apparently, there were some people out there who accused Paul of being deranged, of being crazy, of being out of his mind. You know, in a way, Paul was in good company. People ac accused Jesus of the same exact things. But, but with Paul, I mean, think about it. They said, this guy has got to be crazy. He's out of his mind. After all, what could possibly motivate someone to choose a life of pain, suffering, trials, and discomfort, as Paul had done in choosing to follow Jesus and serve him. So Paul says, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe I am crazy. But you know what? If I'm crazy, it's because I'm crazy for God. I'm head over heels for Jesus. And you know what, though? When I talk to you guys, when I explain these things to you, I'm in my absolute right mind. The things I'm telling you, I'm speaking clearly and accurately. But he says, yes, you know what motivates me? You know what makes me live in this way that might seem crazy to some people? It's the love of Jesus. That's what compels me to do what I do. I love this word here where it says, the love of Christ compels us. This is an interesting word. If you're reading in a different translation of the Bible than the one that I read from, you might notice that that word is translated in multiple different ways, in multiple translations. And the reason is because it's a Greek word, which is apparently kind of hard to translate. But here's the word. It's the word syneko. Sineco. Now, what that word means, it means literally to press together or to squeeze something. It's that feeling of pressure that moves you to do something. How many of you ever felt that? You felt 
pressure. You felt squeezed, like something is grabbing hold of you. It's that feeling of pressure that moves you to act, to do something. And again, that's why in different translations of the Bible, it's translated, this one word is translated in a couple different ways. Some translations say the love of Christ compels us. Others translate it as the love of Christ controls us. Others say the love of Christ constrains us. All of these different translations of this same one original word, what they do is they, they kind of help us to see different angles of what this word means. This word syneco, it, it describes being under pressure. It's, if you will, a narrowness of space, feeling hemmed in as if you have no other choice, no other option. This is your one thing that you can do. And Paul says that is what the love of Jesus does to you when you really get a hold of it, when it gets a hold of you. It grabs you. It, it, it puts this pressure on you that causes you to do things as if you cannot help yourself, as if there's no other option. What else can you do? It's not a negative pressure. It's positive. It makes you want to do certain things. You feel compelled to do them. Now, someone might ask, okay, compelled by the love of Jesus. Well, how do I know if Jesus really loves me? How do I see that? Well, Jesus himself told us, I love this phrase, this sentence that Jesus said to his disciples. He said to them, greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Then we read in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter five, verse eight, it says that God shows or displays or proves his love for us in this, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, if you want to know whether God loves you, if you want to know how much God loves you, don't just listen to his words. Look at his actions. Not only has God faithfully provided you with everything you need for life, but he has met your ultimate, your greatest need. He himself came into the world in order to take your place in judgment so that you could be redeemed and reconciled to him. And you need to hear this today. God loves you. God loves you. You see, these two things, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, they compel us. But what do they compel us to do? That brings us to the final part of our sentence. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ compel us to live our lives for him who gave his life for us. Look at verse 14, the second half of it. It says this, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. Jesus died for all in the sense that his death, his sacrifice that he made, is able to save all who turn to him for salvation. Jesus died for all in the sense that his death on the cross was a demonstration of God's love for all people. And yet, we know, even from Jesus' own words, that not all people will turn to him in faith and be saved. So when Paul says at the end of verse 14 there, therefore all died, he is most likely referring to all those who look to Jesus for salvation. 
And, and we can be quite sure that that's the case, especially when we consider the point that Paul is making here in verses 14 and 15. And that's this. The point Paul's making is that all those who trust in Jesus have died in the sense that their old life apart from Christ is over. It's ended. It's as if they become a completely new person in Christ. And by the way, that's what we're going to talk about next week. You don't want to miss that. That's a very exciting passage. But this is what it means, in other words, to be born again, as Jesus said. It's as if your old life has ended and you've started a whole new life with a new identity, a, with new, a new nature, with new desires, a whole new trajectory. The Bible uses the same kind of language in other places as well to describe what happens to you or what happens in you when you put your faith in Jesus. For example, in Romans chapter 6, we're told that baptism is a picture of death and resurrection. And that to be a Christian is to be a person who has been born again. And that's what baptism symbolizes. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul the Apostle explains what it means to be a Christian. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. and It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, when it says all died, it's referring to this idea of how when you trust in Jesus, what you, what you do is you are putting to death your old way of life apart from Jesus, and you are starting a whole new way of life in following him. And what should characterize this new life that we have in Jesus? Again, look at verse 15. It says, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. You know, in a world that encourages us to live for ourselves, Jesus calls us to do something radically different. In a world that encourages us to be self-interested and self-focused and self-serving, Jesus calls us not to live for ourselves, but to live for him. You know, it, we live in the most individualistic society that has ever existed in the history of the world. But you know what's even more interesting? We also live in the wealthiest society that has ever existed in the history of the world, which means not only do we have this cultural pressure to be self-interested, self-focused, and self-serving, we now have the financial means to make it happen, right? Like, we have the financial means to indulge ourselves in ways that no one has ever had the means to do so in all of history up until now. You see, think about it for a moment. Here we are, this most individualistic society, most wealthy society. We, we not only have the pressure to serve ourselves, but we have the ability now to do it financially. And where has it gotten us? Would we say that as a society, we are generally now happier than people who live before us? Or that we are more content than people before us? Or that we are more fulfilled than people before us? I would say just the answer is is probably no. And I think that if you look at data about how we're seeing higher rates of depression, anxiety, listlessness, hopelessness, that just bears out the fact that these things that we've done, you know, they haven't produced what we thought they would produce. You see, in a world that encourages you to live for yourself, 
Jesus instead calls you to take up your cross and follow him. You know what it means to take up your cross? Well, I want you to think about this. For Jesus, the cross, it was not only the instrument of suffering and death. For Jesus, the cross, going to the cross, it was an act of self-sacrifice, self-giving love for the sake of others. So to take up your cross and follow Jesus, it, it doesn't just mean to suffer. To take up your cross and follow Jesus is about following Jesus in this way of sacrificing for the sake of others, for their good and in fulfillment of God's mission. You see, what Paul's saying here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is this. Since Jesus died for our sins, since Jesus rose from the grave, what that means is that if your hope is in him, you can have the hope of heaven. And what that means is that if that is you, if you have that hope, it means your best life is not this life here and now on earth. Rather, your best life is the one that is to come in eternity. That is where your heart's desires will be fulfilled. So rather than trying to have your best life now, the hope that we have in Jesus, it sets us free to serve God by serving others and to do so courageously and generously. Because, in e if, listen, if eternal life awaits you, then you know what that means for this life? It means you've got nothing to lose and nothing to fear. It, it gives your life here on earth a whole new purpose, meaning, and trajectory. Rather than living for ourselves, it gives us a higher mission and a greater calling to live for him who gave his life for us. And you know what the irony is? Here's the great irony that so many people in this world miss. It is only in taking up your cross and following Jesus that you will actually have a life that is truly meaningful and satisfying and fulfilling. That's the only way to get it. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul found. This is why, even though it involved pain and trials, suffering and hardship, he was compelled to follow Jesus and pour out his life in service to God and service to others. I asked you earlier to consider what it is that compels you to do the things that you do. Listen here, here's the deal. Being compelled by vain desires or by fears, it will ultimately only lead to shallow outcomes. But on the other hand, being compelled by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, it leads to meaningful and fulfilling life of loving God and serving others. And it sets you free from the traps of those other motives and fills your life with purpose that truly matters. As we consider uh, this idea of being compelled Remember that word, sineco, that word it means to be pressed, to be squeezed, to be under pressure. We're reminded of Jesus, how on the night when he was crucified, the night before he was crucified, when he was betrayed, he went out with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he was under so much pressure that blood came out of his forehead as if he was sweating blood. It came out of the pores in his face. That means that the capillaries in his skin were breaking because of the stress that he was under. His face was so contorted that it was bleeding. That's how stressed he was as he anticipated what he knew awaited him if he would go to the cross you know, I got to visit the Garden of Gethsemane on our last trip to Israel. And if you come with us this year, you'll get to go there as well. But you know what struck me about it? 
You know, the Garden of Gethsemane is essentially just like an ancient public park. That's what it is. It's a public park. And what's so, what's so incredible about it is that Jesus could have just stood up and walked out of there at any moment and disappeared into the night. No one was forcing him to stay there. Everybody else was asleep, remember? They wouldn't have even noticed. No one was making him stay there, waiting for those people who were coming to capture him and, and torture him and put him to death. The only thing that kept Jesus there was this pressure, this sinecho that compelled him to stay. The thing that kept him there, the thing which compelled him to go through with it and sacrifice his life, you know what it was? It was love, love for you, the great love that he has for you and the joy of knowing what his death would accomplish for you. So as you go from here today, I wanna challenge you. I wanna challenge you to consider what it would mean, what it would look like for you to live your life for him who gave his life for you. What would it look like practically, even this week, in how you pursue God? What would it look like practically, even this week, in how you serve others? Friends, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ compel us to live our lives for him who gave his life for us. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.